Hello, and welcome to the Reconstruction.us podcast, the place where people from all walks of life discuss what we can all do to transform America into a more equitable nation and ourselves in the process. My name is Kimberly Miller, and I am the host of this show, as well as the website Reconstruction.us, where you can find articles and essays by myself and others who are deeply concerned about the state of our nation and are committed to making real change. In 2020, it is impossible for any of us to avoid being keenly aware that we live in a highly interconnected global society. We are now over six months into the coronavirus pandemic in the United States, and some 6.79 million people have tested positive for the virus. In fact, it is likely that as we record this program today, September 20th, the U.S. is officially crossing a new landmark of 200,000 American deaths as a result. It's been an incredibly stressful time, truly unprecedented in our lifetime, and we are all trying to figure out how to deal with it. One way that many of us cope with stress is to drink or by using drugs. And unfortunately, many Americans may be relying on these old standbys a little or even a lot more than we should. According to Nielsen figures, for the week ending March 14th, off-premises outlets such as liquor and grocery stores saw sales of wine up 27.6% and sales of three-liter boxes of wine rose by 53%. Even online alcohol sales for that week, which was the first week of the lockdown in the United States, they were also up a whopping 42% year-on-year. And at the same time, A new study released last week found that people with substance abuse disorders, including alcoholism, were at a higher risk of catching coronavirus and of suffering its more severe symptoms. Clearly, this is an issue that needs to be on the radar for healthcare workers, but also for family and friends who notice that someone they love may be heading for trouble. Today, I am joined by John Magnuson, a leader in the field of alcoholism and substance use treatment, whom I have asked to share his insights on how we can all care for ourselves and our families if and when we become concerned about the drinking or use of other drugs in our homes. John Magnuson currently serves as the executive director of March, the Minnesota Association of Resources for Recovery and Chemical Health. He brings decades of experience in the areas of prevention, treatment, and recovery. Just prior to taking the leadership position at March, John worked at The Retreat, a non-clinical mutual help approach to the problem of alcohol and drug dependency, was a consultant to Air Healthcare Solutions, and served in Washington, D.C. as vice president of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, and the Vice President of Legislative Affairs for the National Home Infusion Association. In addition to all of those impressive facts, John has served as a consultant to the United States Health and Human Services Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, Augsburg College Step-Up Program, Association of Recovery Schools, 
MAD, the Johnson Institute, and served as both a congressional and campaign staffer to United States Representative Jim Romstad. John is a proud native Minnesotan, just like me, who lives in Minnetonka, where he enjoys hosting family and friends for simple communal meals that celebrate being human. And he is a grateful person living in long-term recovery. What a bio, John. I feel so incredibly honored to have you join us today. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you, Kimberly, and you actually kind of make me sound good. My kids like to keep me humble and uh, remind me I'm just bad, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the kid's job, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we can be impressed. We can definitely be impressed. And um, as I was saying to you before we started, I, I feel like this show is a, a really timely. You know, we are six months into the pandemic, and um, I've talked to more than one friend just in the last couple of weeks who this far into it and with the no end in sight, you know, is really feeling the stress of uh, the isolation and um, everything else that comes with our reality these days. But before we get into some of the more specific situations that people are facing, can you tell us a little bit about March and what specifically that organization is about? Sure, and thank you for asking. We like to simply say that March is driving excellence in addiction care. Um, that sums it up in, in the whole. We serve our providers, professionals, and the patients that deal with substance use disorders by providing excellence in addiction care um, in Minnesota and beyond. And we do this by advocating at the state capitol. We do professional education for our professionals in the field. We do that through an annual conference, a spring retreat. Um, we're bringing online as a part of COVID and moving our conference virtual uh, to a full online learning management system that will allow us to deliver our professional education in a much more um, convenient way, as well as uh, provide greater collaboration with others in the continuum of care. And we also published a newsletter called One Voice, which is an award-winning publication for addiction professionals. Um, we host a monthly public policy forum for those uh, working across the behavioral health care continuum. And once a year in collaboration with the University of Minnesota, we host a statewide gathering um, that we call the State of the State Addiction Summit. So that in a nutshell is what March is, uh, who we serve, and some of the ways in which we do that. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've been very involved in the recovery field uh, in the state, but also at a national level as well. Is that correct? Yeah, I was fortunate at a young age while being at the University of Minnesota to have an opportunity to work with one of our nation's uh, leading advocates in the area of um, addiction and mental health, uh, U.S. Representative Jim Ramstead. And during that time, um, we were working on parity, and parity uh, took decades to get passed. Um, none of this stuff moves quick, um, but the consequences are essential. And we never gave up. Uh, we worked across the country in building coalitions with uh, others and then brought together substance use and mental health. And it ultimately ended up being another uh, national a moment 
uh, like we're experiencing now, the uh, financial meltdown, and that bill that actually uh, included the uh, mental health addiction and parity bill, uh, which mm. was important for you know all of us. Uh, you know, every family is affected by addiction and mental health issues. So important yes. in the country. And that's how I really got involved. And then uh, through that work um, in being in Minnesota, had an opportunity then to work with some of our largest Fortune 100 companies, uh, be a part of, you know, the reforms taking place in healthcare as well as other areas. And then had the opportunity through that uh, to give back to my community, a community which I later learned uh, I actually needed the services of myself. So I was even more grateful to then uh, step into a role of being an advocate from both uh, for others as well as for myself and help bring about, you know, the movement of sober housing, you know, sober schools. I mean, I remember early back in the days going to the Department of Health and talking about sober schools and they're like, well, isn't that Department of Education? And then you go over to the Department of Education and they say, well, isn't that the Department of Health? And right. you say, we're not really certain 100% what it is, but we know it's working. So eventually, we came to understanding it, and that grew across the uh, uh, country, um, as well as Minnesota has been a pioneer in, in just about every area of uh, addiction and mental health. So I'm proud to be from Minnesota. Um, I'm proud to have had a long part of it. And I'm also proud to be a part of our future and where we're going. You know, we have opportunities coming in the areas of population health and looking at how these new tools can come together with new payment models and ways that we can bring about efficiencies to our systems um, and in that process really start to unlock and discover how we're going to address some of these disparities that are in our systems and also how we change some of that systemic structure uh, to bring about more equity and inclusion for all. So I'm mm -hmm to be uh, a, a part of the history as well as the moment and um, hoping to make an impact on the future and where we're going. Oh, it's, that's very exciting. I have to agree with you. I feel the same pride around the fact that Minnesota has long been such a hub and really important center for recovery work going back so many decades. And I, I think we're really blessed to be able to uh, have, you know, the resources that are available here and also to be able to provide them. People fly in here from all over the country to get clean and sober. And that's a beautiful thing. So let's talk a little bit about what's happening these days. You know, I have to tell you, the day that I decided okay, this is it, I'm going to um, shut down. It was actually a week before our governor called for the shutdown. And I actually had something happen that just struck me so, it, it was funny, but it was also scary. Um, but I posted a picture on Facebook because I went from a meeting to the Trader Joe's to the grocery store to get some supplies before I went home and um, as I was walking up through the parking lot, I noticed that there was a big line and I thought, oh, okay, well, everybody else has got the same idea I do. And as I got closer, I realized that 
the line, the, the Trader Joe's was right next to a um, liquor store, to like a, a discount suburban liquor store. And literally, there was no line for the Trader Joe's, but they were halfway down the block for the liquor store. And uh, I just thought to myself, wow, that really speaks volumes about how Americans think when it comes to you know, dealing with a stressful situation. So I'm wondering in your role and in, in these last six months, what has been your observation and what kind of issues is your uh, organization dealing with? Well, first uh, on that issue, I like to remind people that, you know, while we have all these other health issues that get a lot of attention, America's number one health issue is untreated addiction and mental health issues. You know, the, the, the tide of how that plays into so many of the other health conditions is just astounding. And yet, um, we treat it like, you know, it's nobody's business. You know, when we saw the height of the opioid epidemic, um, it was really that soccer moms and, you know, those in the suburbs that were starting to understand addiction because of the prescriptions and, you know, it wasn't those people, it was somebody that they knew. Well, if we really stop and think about addiction, people abuse alcohol all the time. It doesn't yes. mean if you abuse alcohol that you are addicted to alcohol or to drugs. Um, there's a big difference. And, you know, these staggering numbers that we're seeing of the rates of, you know, uh, use, you cited some of them. I've seen them at 40, 50, 60% increases, depending on which, uh, you know, polls or reports that we're looking at. Um, that's an indication that America doesn't like to deal with reality. It likes to check out. And yeah. you know, we also know that uh, they kind of told us once before that take it away from us and we'll find our ways to get at it. And so I think that we're learning from these things that addiction is something that needs to be separated from chemical use and chemical abuse and then really focused on, from a public health standpoint, on addiction, the medical condition that is very treatable and has very high outcomes when we treat it like a condition um, of a chronic nature. Um, and so I'm very excited as the public is recognizing because of the prescription you know, medications that ended up being abused and brought about the opioid epidemic, I'm really um, encouraged that we have an opportunity to have a new dialogue with the American public around how we look at chemicals in our society. They're all around us, all a part of every day of our lives. And we have to understand that I can use them responsibly and I can abuse them. And if I have a problem with them, there's solutions for that. And I shouldn't feel um, afraid or any kind of a stigma in stepping forward. Um, to get help when I need it, uh, because not only do they get the help that comes from it, but they get this rewarding way of living, which is called recovery. And that's a part that um, really ties together the uh, bio, psycho, social, and spiritual aspects around the condition and how we treat it. And then what we get as the byproduct of the treatment of that is a way of living, which is called recovery. So I'm really excited that we are through the misery of both the opioid epidemic, which we haven't left, 
And now through the COVID and seeing just the very beginning of what we see as a typhoon of hurt coming towards our health system in the very near future. I mean, we are seeing right now people coming into our programs at high severity levels like we haven't seen in any recent days. This is just the indicator of what this social isolation has been doing to people. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, uh, as I said, I, I've seen it among some of my own friends, folks that have confided in me that they're concerned about how much they're drinking and that's not something I've ever heard them talk about before, uh, or, you know, loved ones that they're concerned about. And it, it's, I think there's something particularly about this crisis that, meaning the coronavirus um, pandemic, that is particularly hard because it is that perfect storm of needing to be more isolated and being at the highest level of fear of the unknown because we don't know how long it's going to last. We don't know uh, exactly what it is yet. We don't know if there's going to be a vaccine. Like all those questions and having to at the same time avoid being with people. That just seems to me like a perfect uh, plan if you want to really encourage sort of that worst uh, reliance on some kind of substance, whether it be marijuana or alcohol or, you know, whatever it might be, to just try to soothe that uh, tension and anxiety. Yeah, it is frightening when, again, when we think about what's coming as a result. You know, we know in the field of addiction that isolation is a big part of what happens to somebody who uh, gradually, you know, addiction is a brain disease that um, has a biopsychosocial, um, spiritual aspect to it. And as the person becomes more separated from their loved ones, from, you know, their school, from their work, from their community, uh, the greater that the perception starts to be lost on the problem. And we're seeing that right now. And then people replace that with reactions you know, reactions for more consumption, reactions for physical violence. You know, we're seeing skyrocketing rates of domestic abuse right now. Mm. Uh, we're seeing skyrocketing rates of animal cruelty. Um, we are seeing skyrocketing rates of child abuse and neglect. And, and again, uh, I'm not saying all of this is related to addiction, but this isolation that we are going through as a part of trying to do our best to manage our way through the COVID pandemic is going to have, and we are already seeing the effects um, on humans. All of us have been traumatized by this. Um, COVID Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and trauma is the right for word. Those that have addiction, exactly. And for those who have addiction, you know, adding to the traumas that they had maybe already driven them to acquire, you know, we acquire an addiction. Um, I think it's important to help people understand you don't just like go to the store and say, I'd like an addiction on, you know, aisle, you know, two. <laughs> you, know, you acquire addiction in three ways. And the National Institutes of Health are the ones that taught this to me. Um, one is through genetics. You know, it's something that's passed down. It's part of your family. 
and your makeup, uh, your, your DNA, your structure of who you are. So you really didn't have a choice. That's the biggest way that we see the acquisition of addiction. The other is by the consumption. You know, that's what we really saw explode in the time of the opioid epidemic, where you're using a medication for very legitimate reasons, like pain medication. And you, as you use it, you start to need more to use the, for the same effect. And therefore, you then acquire an addiction through, you know, the volume of use. And the third way is through environmental, um, you know, traumatic events that happen to you. And then a person is utilizing a substance to blot something out and then it becomes part of what that person needs to function um outside of that you know it doesn't happen because your wife told you that you're that the, you have a problem or because your sister told you that you had a problem or because your friend did but uh if any of those folks are telling you you have a problem it's a good indicator that you could have a problem that's why we encourage people to reach out um, to treatment providers in Minnesota. They can find a list of those on our website um, and get an evaluation done. You know, if we thought we had a problem with our arm, we would go to the doctor and they would evaluate it, and give us, you know, an estimation of what the problem was. Well, the same thing can happen in the areas of, um, you know, substance use disorder, chemical mental health, you know, however we want to look at it or call it. Um, we have to get comfortable and that's what we have to do and access it. And again, the severity levels, you know, it used to be that we treated people in one way. You know, we sent you for, you know, X number of days to a program. That was how we did treatment. We've learned so much more since that time. And we now have varying degrees. It's, it's based off of the American Society of Medicine's criteria. And you know, these are where we make referrals to different levels of care that a person needs. So you could come in and be presenting with just, you know, maybe abusing alcohol. Um, that doesn't mean you're going to be sent away to a treatment program. It's going to be information that you can use to help you evaluate and watch your use over time. You know, if you had a problem like we're having now, you may abuse a substance for a period of time but not acquire an addiction over the long haul of time. Mm -hmm. And these are that we have to get more comfortable with looking at and addressing in this area of you know, mental health and substance use. So I'm encouraged by what we're going to continue to uh, gain as we bring forward the full continuum of care that we have available to people. But I'm also very concerned for our systems in that we are not prepared for the typhoon of hurt that is coming our way. And again, all of those indicators are showing that a lot of people are in their homes right now hurting. And we encourage them uh, to reach out. Again, go to our website, um, marrch.org, and reach out to any of our providers and get an assessment done. We're here to help. And this is why I, I really wanted to talk with you today because one of the things you said that I think is so important is that this is a disease unlike so many other chronic diseases that has such a negative stigma attached to it. And so it is very common, of course, for people to feel very ashamed of this disease in a way that, as you pointed out, you don't if it's your arm that hurts kind of thing. 
and you know the subtitle of our of this podcast and and the website reconstruction is transforming america and transforming ourselves because it is very much just as we're seeing with the pandemic what's happening around me matters it impacts how i feel personally and how i feel personally impacts how i act in the world and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how people can try to address that issue of shame or you know stigma it might be too clinical of a word but um you know all of the feelings of oh god i don't i don't want to talk to anybody about that or as you pointed out, uh, oh God, that means they're going to send me away to a treatment facility and I don't want to do that. I got a work to do. Well, first off, I think that we have to um, really set the record straight here. In the year 2020, if we are acknowledging stigma and still practicing it, I think that's a different word that we need to call that. That's called discrimination. And when people are practicing a discrimination on people, we need to call that out and we need to take actions against those that will continue to do that, whether it's in our um, payment structures, whether it's in our care systems that don't view, oh, these are just those people that you know just keep rolling through. Well, how about if we treat them instead of just roll them through? You know, that we're making really good grounds on. Um, some of the interventions that we're doing in emergency rooms, mm -hmm. you know, to be when you would come in, you might be experiencing an overdose and you would come in, you would get resuscitated and you would be stabilized and then you would be sent on your way. Well, then the people in the emergency room would complain because somebody might come back the next day. Well, how about a novel idea? How about when somebody's in that state of being treated for an overdose due to most likely an addiction? How about if you ask them, you think you have a problem, and if you do, and we could get you in right now, would you go to treatment? Huge numbers, 70% of people are willing to go to treatment at that moment. Why on earth we weren't doing this earlier, I don't need to answer, I'm just encouraged that we are recognizing those moments of opportunity and taking advantage of those. That's yes. part of what we were doing for strategies of lowering you know, the consequences from the opioid epidemic. And we're gonna have to continue these as we go forward with this typhoon of hurt that's coming our way. Mm -hmm. um, and we need to learn quick um, from what worked there and get prepared to do all sorts of, you know, and those are called brief interventions. Um, again, we need to look at opportunities for brief interventions in our schools. When we have the star player on the football team, uh, that is cited for an alcohol violation, you know, rather than sending them to detention, how about we send them to some education around addiction, mental health, and you know, other issues? I'm not saying that that person has those, but wouldn't that be a lot more productive than having them just sit doing nothing in the detention? Right, and if they don't have it now, if you give them that education, if five, 10 years down the road, it does become a bigger problem, would it not be beneficial for them to have had some of that information up front? Exactly, exactly. That's the way that we can start to normalize it then, mm -hmm. where 
becomes another topic that we're talking about. It's not this thing that's reserved for only the times when you do something bad. And that's the part where, or when you're having a consequence of something. And that's where when we start to bring it into our everyday life, um, talking about mental health issues, talking about the levels and where we're at. Our family around the dinner table always asks people what's our high of the day, our low of the day, and our good deed of the day. Kind of the things that set you up to go into conversations around what's going on in your life. Uh, you check in with each other. When we get in the habit of doing these things, it turns from being an awkward conversation into just a normal conversation. You know, again, in, in my own household, I'm a person that lives in recovery. The others in my household weren't. Doesn't mean that the substance is the bad issue. It's how the person that has the health condition utilizes and is treated within that ecosystem that creates the community that supports somebody who's in recovery. In yes. my family and in my household, it doesn't matter if there is a substance in the home because I've got the support system that recognizes that that's not good for dad. And you know, for other people, it's okay. And that's a norm that we're just teaching uh, without doing anything other than living that way. You know, some of the personal ways that we can start to look at these issues and do them differently. And also recognize that sometimes people can't have those substances around them, that the triggers that are associated with it are so strong. And then we have to understand that and create those kind of environments. You know, I've been in lots of workplaces where on Friday you roll up the bar and, you know, it's happy hour at, you know, 4.30 at, uh, at the end of the day. I'm not making a judgment on that. What I'm saying is that's great, but are they thinking about the people in the workforce that don't party, uh, which, as we know, at least half of the population really doesn't use substances in the way that you would think about the advertising that we see in society. And so <laughs> we need to really bring about more of a realization of the norms of our society and not what the advertising tells us are the norms of society. And that's just this kind of education. So thank you for asking these questions and, you know, and uh, being interested in helping others uh, learn more about what's going on. Yeah, such, such great information. I had to smile when you were talking about um, folks in, in the work settings, because I, uh, about 20 years ago, I um, had an opportunity to work in England for uh, almost six months course there it's a, a much stronger drinking culture they've got recovery there they've got AA there etc but it's so deeply embedded in the culture and I've seen that in some American towns and, and cities you know more than others too but in any case I, I remember asking a colleague if they wanted to go out on a Friday night I was you know pretty new and in just uh, coming over the pond. And um, we set something up and I thought we were going to dinner and we, uh, they suggested meeting at a pub right after work, which perfectly normal, sounded fine to me. And it ended up being a pub crawl. And I literally, you know, ended up following this group of colleagues around for about four hours. And finally at about 1030 at night just said, you know what, you guys, if you need to keep going, okay, but I have to eat some dinner. 
<laughs> you know, it was, but it was so obvious that not only had I not, it hadn't occurred to me just because it wasn't a part of the kind of work culture that I was used to in the States, um, and certainly not by that time, but also it had, it, it was so natural for them. And I, I enjoyed it. They were really fun people and I respected them tremendously, but it did feel a little lonely by the end of the evening as they're getting more and more soused and I'm just kind of going, God, you know, I really need to eat some dinner and these people aren't listening. Um, so it, it's funny how you can end up in situations sometimes where, you know, it just doesn't even occur to you that this could be an issue. And I think that's happened to a lot of people with the opioid crisis as well, in the same way that I remember seeing when um, crack really, you know, took over in the 80s and cocaine and so many people, it just became a part of life and, and took over so quickly before you even had a chance to think about it. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and, and you had asked about the stigmas, um, you know, and I went to the, the, the separation between a stigma and a discrimination. I, I also, you know, will share an, as an example that stigma that exists within us. Um, you know, it's, it's the shame, and you were just talking about it. It's some of the being different than others, you know, mm -hmm. like how I'm different, you know, oh, woe is me, you know. And then when we're put into social situations, at the time, I was uh, 20, 20 years uh, into recovery, very stable in my recovery. I'm all of a sudden ushered into this situation where I'm sitting at the head table with the ambassador of Japan. And all of a sudden, I realized that, wow, everybody in this room is looking at me and they are pouring sake into the drinks. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I am going to create an international situation. Incident. <laughs> you know, sushi. And so <laughs> right. moment, like, what do I do? You know, do I drink it? Do I? And like, I, I was like questioning, I'm, I have to take one for my country here. You know, well, this is the stigmas that are stuck in our brains that somehow not drinking something. And, you know, so I raised the glass like everybody else in the room. And then I set it down on the table. And yeah. then I called my good friend, uh, William Moyers at Hazlet and I said, William, I, I, I just need some like help here because I'm gonna keep it in, you know, I have to do a lot with the ambassador in the work that I'm doing. And he laughed and he said, John, if you were allergic to chocolate cake and they put chocolate cake down on your table, what would you do? You would simply say, don't bring me any more chocolate cake. I'm allergic to it. Yes. It's the same when, with substances. If, if we have a condition, a health condition, we simply need to be okay with saying, I'm okay, I'm allergic to alcohol, you know? And then the world can move on. It's when people don't know how to interact with each other that then it creates the awkwardness around the situations. And that's where, again, the more that we talk about addiction and the more that we talk about mental health as the very treatable conditions they are, the more that people actually want to seek help for it. And we also draw the distinction between, look, if you abuse alcohol, it doesn't mean you're addicted. So you're not going to get sent away to treatment. And so don't worry about it. But if you are worried about your abusing of alcohol, then maybe you've got a condition. And the good thing is 
it was a very treatable solution. And so that's the conversation that we have to keep having. And because of the many chemicals that have now come into society, it's taken it from being, these are the good chemicals and these are the bad chemicals. These are the illicit chemicals and these are the you know, ones in which people use and don't even recognize that they're using a drug. You know, alcohol right. That's is a number one used uh, chemical. You know, yet they think that it's just in, enjoying blowing off some steam. And again, we're not here to create a division with people who use chemicals or even abuse chemicals. We're here to offer help for those who have a problem with an addiction or a mental health. You know, many people that have mental health also have co-occurring um, or have an addiction, have many co-occurring mental health issues. Um, and that goes to some of that underlying efforts that the NIH is bringing forward mm -hmm. in the study around COVID and others. Yeah. So let me ask you, what if I'm one of those folks and I'm listening to the podcast right now and in my heart, I'm thinking, well, yeah, I've kind of been thinking and questioning in the back of my mind. I haven't said anything to anybody. I'm not necessarily sure I think there's a problem here, but I am kind of wondering. It's been, you know, five months that I've been going through a box of wine a week, one of those three <laughs> gallon boxes of wine. How do I know? How do I find out? Well, there are uh, evaluations. They are simple tools that you um, talk to another person. They can be done over the phone, best when done in person. And you answer a series of questions. Those questions will give a clinical person an ability to give you back um, a, a, an evaluation of where you're at in the severity. Um, again, in the old way in which we looked at you know, addressing these issues, you were either somebody, a candidate to go to treatment, or as we look at it now, here's your level of severity. And we can offer you, you know, some self-help that might be good for you to check out if you're not really reaching a level that, you know, is, is showing a need for um, an intervention or being engaged into a full treatment program, you know, and, and that we, you had mentioned a few of the self-help, you know, the AA as well as NA and many other uh, self-help programs as well. There's also self-help programs for families. There's um, ACA, uh, Al-Anon and, you know, lots of other programs. Hi folks, this is Kim breaking in for just a brief intermission to ask you for your support. If you like what you're hearing here at reconstruction.us, we would be so grateful if you could take just a moment and rate, subscribe, and even leave a comment for us. Also wanted to let you know that we now have started launching our podcast on YouTube. The first show is up and available now, and please do check it out again at reconstruction, that's re-construction.us. Thank you. And now let's get back to our discussion with John Magnuson. So, John, it's good to know that there are some um, support programs there for family and, as I understand it, also for friends of people where they are either already involved in some kind of alcohol or drug uh, recovery or even uh, people who maybe are just concerned about somebody. 
So that's great to hear about those. I wonder, you know, um, I know AA's been around for a very long time since, uh, well, decades now, really. Uh, Is that still the primary option? Or if I do want to reach out and uh, get more information, what kind of options might be out there for me to get some help? Well, thank you, Kim. And this is the part around our field that I get most excited on. Um, We have had very effective ways of treating people over the years. In fact, Minnesota led the way on the Minnesota model and exporting that idea to really the world, which became the standard in which we built our treatment. Since that time, we've also innovated the industry, adding to it um, really a look where we go from an episodic approach of care or like you were referencing the old 28 days you send your loved one away to some place and somehow they get fixed and then they come back to the community and now they're well. Well, come on, we all know that would be like sending a diabetic to the emergency room and expecting that somehow their diabetes has gone away because we stabilized the condition. It just isn't the way that you know, really addiction is treated or how, or the supports that we have available. And so, you know, now we look at um, addiction care or substance use disorder is the actual term for substances. There are, um, you know, mental health disorders and there are also behavioral health disorders. So there's a wide variety of ways in which we can help people. And then we look at it over a continuum um, that once somebody starts, Uh, Not everybody comes in at the same level of severity. You know, some people are functioning, have their job. That's great. Our goal is to try and keep you in your job, keep you operating uh, within your family, to keep you engaged in your community. But you need some help with dealing with, you know, a substance use disorder. And addiction really distorts everything. It's a brain um, condition as well. Some people lose everything. And those folks, While we have very effective um, prevention, interventions, diversion programs, some people lose it all and then they're going to need an inpatient program or um, a residential is the actual term that we use. And so that is what we call then the continuum of care. And then there's also step downs. You know, you may be in one level where you needed uh, a residential, then move to an outpatient, but maybe you're experiencing some additional difficulties and you need a more supportive environment. You know, you might move to something like a sober home where you have a supportive community around you. Um, That's not a part of the the treatment, but that's part of the supports that are out there in the um, world of, of treatment. And in that world of supports, we've also recognized that people having a stable job, you know, is another area of, support that really increases your ability to maintain your recovery over um, a long time. And then, as you had mentioned, AA, there's AA, there's uh, NA, there's Smart Recovery, there's Celebrate Recovery, there's all sorts of community-based programs that have come into play um, that offer a whole wide variety um, of supports out there, inclusive of Um, Just, frankly, the recovery community in general, you know, we just all participated in a virtual walk this year because of uh, the COVID, but it's that coming together of community that really 
starts to change that idea that has always left us with that um, nagging and unfair stigma around these issues of substance use disorder and mental health. And so that's where when we look at it as a continuum, I think that we really start to erase that. And, you know, that continuum, again, going back to the very beginning of it, it starts with a detox or a withdrawal management program. Um, and even before that, it's that prevention and intervention that we can be doing that keeps people out of programs. We're not in the business of making business. We're in the business of helping people that have lost options when it comes to substances ruling their life. So if we found a way of preventing addiction, we would love that and be happy to um, usher that in. Unfortunately, at this time, that doesn't exist, but there are strategies that we can be putting out there in our public education and our awareness. And a lot of that you hear really bold down to you know, stigma. Um, and I really, again, remind people that stigma is important, um, but so is looking at discrimination. And when we recognize stigmas but leave it, um, that's really a, dis a discrimination. So that's kind of a quick look at you know, treatment today, um, some of the early end of what we can do on the prevention interventions, and then the, you know, we bring people in through a detox or withdrawal management, helping them clear up. And then we offer that whole variety of different kinds of programs, residential, children's, inpatient, outpatient, stage levels, you know, the use of medications, culturally specific programs, gender specific programs, programs, you know, as we have an aging population that are geared towards older adults, um, so we really have a whole plethora of ways that we can help you and your loved ones that I think people just don't really realize, uh, which really goes to that this is a very treatable condition. Um, and, and that's the main takeaway I think that people, you know, I hope they hear is that if you have a problem with um, a substance or an addiction, it's very treatable. There's no, no problem in raising your hand and saying help. It's very effective. So absolutely. Well, that's very exciting. I particularly to hear about um, this idea of a continuum that it isn't just one, you know, that classic square peg round hole. You know, I might not fit exactly what I think of as the stereotype, which I think is still really true for a lot of people that, you know, when they think of an alcoholic, are they thinking of maybe somebody they knew in their family or, you know, somebody they knew at work who had already lost everything or was on their way to losing everything. And, oh, that can't be me. But what I hear you saying is, well, it might not be me yet, but there's a whole lot of ways that I can get some support and I don't need to feel ashamed about reaching out or even just being willing to kind of go online and check out a questionnaire or something really simple like that to get some kind of sense of, am I wondering about this for a good reason or nothing to worry about? So that's really exciting. Absolutely. And you hit the nail on the head. There's that big difference that we've talked about on whether you are truly someone who needs treatment or someone who is simply abusing the chemicals that are available to us in our lives. Mm -hmm. You know, 
because you get a DUI does not mean that you are um, someone with a substance use disorder. Many times there's good indicators and many times those do go together, but that's not in itself um, the indicator. And that's why we have, as you were talking about, some of the screening tools that are available. And that's part of what we call the evaluation. Um, and an evaluation is really where we ask through a series of questions, and you can find those at many of our providers online or through, um, you know, the SAMHSA and, and other government um, sites, you know, those questionnaires that give you an ability to ask yourself, have I been doing this? Have I been doing this? Have I been doing this? And then that information helps determine where you are at in that severity of, you know, either are you abusing alcohol or drugs, or are you um, truly slipped over into the world of, you know, an addiction or uh, substance use um, disorder. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's, you know, again, as we recognize and the solution isn't something that becomes so mysterious. More people actually want to seek the solution, you know? Um, and that's again, where I just think that we've made some great strides forward, but we still have lots of room um, to go. That's a really good point. I, uh, I just really appreciate you kind of laying that out because I, th I do think it's very helpful. You know, I'm wondering, I was living in California at the time that uh, they were going through the process of legalization of marijuana. And I remember seeing uh, as the campaign kind of heated up in terms of promoting legalization, I started seeing billboards on the freeway talking about cannabis as, uh, you know, almost as if it was a drug-free zone to be using cannabis and promoting the idea of legalization. And I know that that's been an ongoing discussion in many states and uh, many others have followed suit, Colorado obviously being, I believe it was the first, and that there's some discussion here in Minnesota. And I was wondering if you could tell us about the state of affairs with marijuana legalization and your own thoughts around that from an addiction perspective. Sure. Um, and a very important topic that you raise. You know, this is an issue, though, that it is so complex that one question doesn't really answer the question. And so we have found that when someone asks a question, we kind of have to get a little more information about where they're coming from. But I'll give you kind of a general sense of that idea in really looking at it in some of the major lenses that one has to view the issues around the question of um, legalization of a commercial product. You know, there's really the safety issues, there's the commercialization, there's the medicalization, uh, and then there's the social and criminal justice aspects. And there's probably a 10 others that you could bring in very quickly. You know, I don't even know if we'll cover all of these, but to give you an example, the one that I'm most concerned about from a public health standpoint, and you know, as I've been asked to come up to the legislature and that I hear repeatedly from our legislators as well, is, you know, the, the public health. You know, how, do, how is this going to affect public health? In that regard, the adults in the room having the conversation thus far have really done our youth a big disservice because the takeaway message that they have learned from this at this point, because there's been a lot of comparisons of marijuana to alcohol. 
And in that comparison, there has been, it is safer than alcohol. And if you want to say that it's safer than, I mean, I suppose pine salt might be safer than Lysol, but, you know, neither one of them is really great for you. Um, and therefore, I don't really like to get into that debate. But the, the byproduct of that debate is really this idea that it is safe. And young people in high schools, as we talk to the counselors that are in the schools, are very concerned over this issue on what's come about from um, our debate so far. You know, um, the U.S. Surgeon General, um, Dr. Jerome Adams, um, reminds us that nearly one in five people who begin marijuana use during their adolescence will become addicted. And, you know, states, yes, you can become addicted to marijuana. Another one of those that it's kind of been a disinformation that's out there is that marijuana isn't addictive. And then Dr. Nora Volkov, who's the director of the National Institutes of Drug Abuse, um, she's talked about the preclinical studies of the THC exposure during adolescence has shown greater sensitivity to those rewards um, and the effects of other drugs. You know, we all know that if people in their adolescence stay away from drugs and alcohol, their propensity to ever acquire an addiction massively drops. And the number one um, drug of choice of young people, you know, increasingly is becoming marijuana. And so I think that there's real concerns, again, from that safety standpoint, and then also looking at the commercialization. And that's what I really like to call this question, because, you know, I talked about the medicalization. Mar Minnesota already has medical marijuana, you know, and if we're using something as a medical product, we already have pharmacies. So when we are looking at building out marijuana dispensaries, I have to look at it and say, are we really talking about a medical product or more of a commercial product? And again, I'm one that is a realist. Lots of people in Minnesota right now smoke marijuana illegally. That's just a reality. There's not somebody with his finger in the dike and, oh my gosh, if, you know, the citizens of Minnesota, if it's on the ballot as an initiative and they legalize marijuana, it's not like the world is coming to an end. But the one thing that I know is that you increase the volume, you're going to increase the problem of substance use disorder. And we're also setting up a system that has another big commercial product. You know, we know right now that we have alcohol, we have cigarettes, and we'll have, if, you know, people in Minnesota choose, we would have another big commercial product. Um, and that commercial, Absolutely. I think that we need to take a look at because a lot of those numbers that some of the states, like you had referenced Colorado, some of those states in the early days saw a great windfall of revenue that came in. Well, that was because they were the only state in the, in the union that was offering it. So all that medical tourism, um, as they called it, you know, really drew a lot of, you know, people and revenue coming in. As we've talked to the experts in um, our equivalent field out in Colorado, um, they've been concerned because while some of those revenues were dedicated to treatment, they're now seeing that those revenues are shrinking as other states are legalizing. So in effect, revenue streams then to treat the problem are actually shrinking in the state of Colorado now. 
And then some of the other areas around safety and social justice, they, they kind of blend together in some regards. The idea, and it's easy to understand when, um, you know, we have people of color being arrested at almost six times um, greater than people who are white. I mean, that's just a travesty that has to end. And that's an issue that unfortunately, the statistics do not show out that the states that have legalized marijuana, that that incarceration has really significantly dropped in those states. And that's an alarming um, statistic that I've seen that, you know, that's I think really why people, a lot of people want to move in that direction. But things like removing criminal penalties, you know, things like that are much more effective when you're looking at really addressing um, those disparity issues or looking at things like changing sentencing guidelines. That's another way that we can address issues like that. I'm not saying that legalization wouldn't or in some cases do that, but those are the questions that we share with, you know, people as we talk around these issues. And, you know, that's really our job. Our job isn't per se to tell you, the public, uh, you know, what to do. Our job is to give information so that you can make good decisions around the issues of the substances that are in our community. And, um, you know, we, though, as an association, are definitely committed to um, social justice as well as the criminal justice reform. And we've already been working with the Department of Corrections, you know, those from the mental health community, and then our substance um, use community on looking at ways that we can really keep people out of our criminal justice system before they ever get tagged with any kind of, um, you know, a label or a criminal uh, prosecution when we can identify that these people truly have a substance use disorder. People who have a condition that they are simply responding to something that they need as um, the way in which their body, their brain, um, you know, is telling them um, and, and they become vulnerable to taking actions that unfortunately are criminal. And, and again, that's on that area of early prevention, diversion, intervention, um, and, and we're learning tons in that area. And also um, really improves um, the opportunity for everyone in the state of Minnesota because we're using our resources better than. You know, if somebody is being housed in a prison and getting their treatment in a prison, how about we help them find a community-based program that is really going to bring about savings for the state budget and get them the help that they need in the care and setting that will be more supportive because most people that are in a jail or a prison end up coming back to our community. And so these are some of the areas where all of the experts in criminal justice and looking at social justice are really seeing that these are some really effective ways that we can really help to change those levels of disparity um, while we're really addressing the core issues that are the problem. You know, you take the drugs and alcohol away, you tend to have the criminal activity go away in most people. Again, I'm not saying that everybody uh, that's the case, but in most people, um, that's been the, our experience. And so when we can again move from looking at uh, addiction, substance use disorder as a criminal justice, and looking at it more as a public health and medical issue, I just think that we're gonna continue to see reforms take place 
that really will go to the heart of some of these disparities that have been allowed to exist. And again, you know, on, on the, the medical marijuana or legalization, another statistic that just really bothers me, you know, in the communities where that are most affected, um, where people of color or of economic are living, you know, the rate of alcohol stores in those communities is eight times higher. I mean, again, maybe that's another, you know, metric that we need to be looking at as a part of why are people, you know, using more drugs? Why do they get incarcerated more? Why? I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, it's real clear um, on the six times more likely to be arrested for drugs if you're a person of color. That's, that's clear. I'm not denying that. But we also should look at some of these other factors because we've been working on these issues for a long time and these disparities remain. So that's where we're committed to really looking at how do we in our community address the issues of addiction, um, some of the social injustices, and we definitely already have solutions in the area of the criminal justice um, that we've been putting into play in the last three years. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. There's a lot there, obviously, and I really appreciate you addressing the different aspects of it. Just anecdotally, I mean, I, I can share that I, I was living in Mendocino, California for the most of the last year or so before I moved back to Minnesota. It was right before legalization was about to happen, but everybody knew it was coming. And um, I mean, I think in terms of both the issue of commercialization and the issue of equity in terms of how it's, you know, handled and addressed. I mean, quite frankly, the primary economy of Mendocino and, uh, you know, above is or was at that time marijuana. And I remember driving along the freeway and just listening to talk show radio up there and people talking very openly about their concerns about price crashes. So, you know, here you have a very open kind of everybody knows this is happening. Everybody is, I mean, not everybody's growing, but many people are growing. Many people are making their livelihoods on it. And, and certainly there's plenty of folks using. But it was fascinating to me to just watch how as the legalization was happening, the kind of discussions that were going on in that environment. But nobody says the ghetto of Mendocino, <laughs> right? right? Even though it's a hotbed and has been for decades of, you know, that's, that's where we get our stuff. So I thought that was really interesting. And the other thing that I just really appreciate about um, your comments, because I heard that very directly from young folks and, and personally, as well as, you know, interviews and, and things I saw in, uh, in the media, that young people, many of them are quite convinced that marijuana is not as bad as alcohol, that it is, it was all fake, you know, that it was just a campaign that was in the 30s to tell us we're crazy, and really it's not a problem at all. And uh, as somebody who used it as a teenager and gave it up in her early adulthood, and it's been decades now, but there's no question. I, I've known people who were very severely addicted to marijuana. I've known, in fact, quite a lot of them. And so I'm very, very happy to hear you talking about 
again, the complexity, that it's not just one or the other, but that uh, the issue of legalizing and justice and how that justice is administered versus how do we address any other kind of addictive substance, legal or not, I think is a really, really important differentiation. So thank you for that. Absolutely. And I, and I would do a disservice, too, if I didn't bring up this, you know, with COVID-19 being so alive right now, you know, we really do need to educate the public um, that, you know, again, NIDA has been putting this out left and right. That's the National Institutes of Drug Abuse that, you know, vulnerable populations are those most susceptible to, um, you know, COVID-19. Those who smoke or vape marijuana are in that most susceptible category. And again, that's where safety, when you look at this, this isn't a just a recreational, let's just use a, a, a chemical and there's no consequence. Um, you know, there's lots of consequences to abusing alcohol. There are consequences to abusing any uh, chemical and marijuana is a chemical. It is you know, and when you abuse it, um, there are severe issues that happen in that. The other piece on being fair and kind of looking at it from all sides as well, again, and I mentioned it, but I kind of glossed over, is that there is that medical aspect of marijuana. But again, Minnesota already- oh, That's a good point, marijuana. right? And those who are arguing from the standpoint that it is very cumbersome to be able to get that, there is some legitimacy to that. And so- I think, again, one has to look at how we sift through these issues and really do the best for educating the public around the issues of public health, um, you know, the issues of safety and uh, treatment, and also then the um, criminal justice, which, again, another one of those notions is that somehow that there aren't any consequences, and that's not true. You know, the states where legalization has taken place, people get pulled over at higher rates for um, being under the influence of drugs. And that's just a reality. And so those are the realities that we like to bring forward and make sure that the public is aware of, and you know, they're gonna have a choice. Mm -hmm. And so we just hope to be a part of that conversation, reminding our government leaders that if you, if you do legalize it, because you're going to create problems that we already have a treatment gap in this country. 22 million people, 12 or older, need help, and yet only 2.6 million receive the care that they need. That causes all kinds of other problems in all of our other systems, um, our social services, our, you know, jails and prisons. And, you know, we just think that if we're going to legalize another commercial product, that we should be dedicating the vast majority of those resources to those who already are inadequately um, experiencing that treatment gap that the U.S. Surgeon General um, highlighted very effectively in the uh, a report to the American citizens, um, addiction in America. You know, we, we like to say addiction in America, it's our number one health um, issue. And I hope that people start to recognize it that way. 
because when we address that issue and solve those problems, we also improve the lives of all of us in our communities. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. Thank you again for the opportunity to, to talk about these important issues. Oh, absolutely. I, I think it's very important. And, and uh, I know we need to close out here, but I just want to mention there was an article that I saw just about a week ago. Uh, it's early uh, days, but they've already been able to take a look at the connection between COVID, both the level of severity that people experience, as well as your tendency to actually uh, get COVID, definitely goes up as well for uh, folks that are, um, you know, in are, are dealing with drugs and alcohol. So and I think that uh, that's a bad also, warning for us. Absolutely. I think that report also shows some of those areas that the disparities exist as well. You know, we're, we're very mindful of always looking for how we can improve in these um, areas that disparities exist. And yes, another, another yes. good example, you know. Right, right. It's uh, and I think, you know, to to look at it in terms of if I'm smoking anything and we know this is a disease that usually kills people in large part because of the infection in the lungs. That's a really good point. So I just wanted to kind of emphasize that. Well, my goodness, what a phenomenal conversation. I am so grateful to you again, um, John, and I hope this won't be the last time that we get to talk, but I, we should go ahead and kind of wrap up for today. I just would love it if you could share with us how folks might contact March and any other, you know, websites, uh, numbers, et cetera. If people are looking for more information, either in terms of the recovery movement through your organization or just personally, where would you suggest that we start? Absolutely. And thank you again for the opportunity to join you and your listeners. This has been a, a wonderful way in which we can get uh, useful information, uh, remind people that treatment does work, it's effective, and that uh, recovery is actually a great way of living. And you can find access to all of those resources, whether it's the early prevention, the treatment, and the providers that are available, as well as some of the community um, supports by going to our website, which is www.marrch.org. That's uh, March is the name of the organization, and it's spelled M-A-R-R-C-H dot org. Um, and there you will have uh, a wealth of information. We also have every year in the fall, uh, late in October, our annual conference, which um, will continually be building in more of that public aspect and um, as a resource for people. So really, uh, again, thank you for the opportunity of being with you, uh, educating your viewers, um, and really just helping to address America's number one health issue, addiction. So thank you. Absolutely. And again, really appreciate your time. And this does bring us to the end of this week's podcast here at reconstruction.us. Again, that's re-construction.us. Please do visit our website where you can find more interviews such as this, as well as stories and essays by people 
who care deeply about the state of our country and are committed to making real change. As always, please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share this podcast with somebody who you think might be interested. We've got plenty of different subjects, again, available on our website, reconstruction.us. Have a wonderful week.